0: G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey and I'm joined by my dad clinical psychologist Chris Mackey and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day dad, how are you going today? Good
1: thanks Rowan and good to be with you
0: again always good to be with you on the podcast and to be able to continue our little series that we're doing on schema therapy and the essentials of schema therapy as we called it and we have the third episode today which we'll be covering off the fourth and fifth needs that we've spoken about over the last couple of weeks but dad i must admit it, it's been a, a dense little series that we've done so far it's one that i probably took a little bit longer to process the content and other podcasts but i must admit it's something that i have thought about quite a bit over the last couple of weeks because it seems to me that this is such an important part of psychology even though it is quite a, a meaty topic in some ways
1: yes so schema therapy has a lot of depth to it and when we're talking about schemas as a particular psychology topic what we're talking about is patterns of behavior where people tend to run into more longer term trouble and so The purpose of highlighting schemas and the theme of these podcasts that we've been doing the last couple of times this time and then one more to come is that we're looking at the landscape of the kind of personality problems that people tend to have that contribute to more difficulty with things like anxiety or depression or relationship problems. These are the kind of difficult patterns that lie underneath. And the point is, if we can identify some of these troublesome underlying patterns that contribute to ongoing depression or anxiety or relationship problems other difficulties in life then we can get at them a little bit more directly and so that's why we're talking about particular schemas and families of schemas different areas where people run into trouble and then hopefully some practical principles for helping address them
0: and i wonder if it's the sort of thing as well too where Look, I must admit, like I've looked at a lot of these schemas, even some of the ones that we're going to be talking about today. And as someone who's you know not necessarily come across a lot of this information before, I wonder if there's almost maybe a tendency to to think, geez, you know, I, I relate a little bit to that, I relate a little bit to that one, and even though I potentially wouldn't need schema therapy, you can still see elements in each of the schemas where you sort of think, ah, that that potentially has come up in one or two different situations over the time. And so it seems to me that it is such a a central part of psychology, even in terms, I think, of good characters I've seen in movies and TV shows. And I think potentially some of them have some consistency to them that maybe comes from the schemas, if that makes sense. And so it just seems that even though it is a a big topic to take on, it's something that is a, a huge topic to get your head around in psychology, but also something that... I imagine even if people relate to a little bit, it's not as if, you know, we're, we're saying you have to go and get therapy and you're likely to come across lots of difficulties. It's just an interesting way to, I suppose, describe, as you say, some of the patterns that we could potentially come across time and time again.
1: Yes, yeah, so I think many of our listeners will identify with some of these patterns to a mild degree without it being a full schema. If we say that someone has a problem with a schema, we're saying that they have that problem to a certain extent, to a certain level of severity or intensity, if you like. So when people strongly identify with the schemas that we're talking about, then usually it's worthwhile people following that through in a therapy setting because it does go into more depth, certainly in terms of usual cognitive behavioural therapies. But more generally, for many people listening as well, many will relate to some of these patterns to a milder degree and it can alert us to parts of our life that might be more mildly out of balance or potentially can lead us to having some difficulty from time to time. So yes, generally it's about the deeper patterns which often people might need ongoing therapy for for a period of time. But yes, it's also for general awareness of the kind of personality
0: difficulties that are the more common ones where people often struggle well let's get into today's podcast we may as well get straight into it and we're going to be talking about as we say that the fourth and fifth needs in terms of the core needs that if they're not satisfied can lead to some issues with the schemas and the fourth need that we're going to be talking about is freedom to express valid needs and emotions so This is something that makes a fair bit of sense. Dad, obviously, you know, we all want to be listened to. We all want to be heard. But the problem that I believe can come out of basically not having our our needs and emotions validated and, and listened to is other directedness, which I must admit is a little bit of a technical term. It doesn't necessarily make full sense just reading it off the page. So what does other directedness mean?
1: Okay, well, other directedness is when people are not so able to identify or express their own needs and interests because they're a little bit too focused on other people's reactions. And so we'll talk about three different patterns for that. One is subjugation, one is self-sacrifice, and one is approval-seeking. So just say if we start off with subjugation. Just say if someone tends to pick dominating partners or they're in a relationship where they allow that other person to dominate them they might be quite passive and compliant and and feel powerless in their relationship and I would say in my experience one of the more common ways that that came up is when people were in a domestic violence relationship that would be when it would be more obvious So a partner might be very aggressive and controlling and people were stuck in that kind of situation. You sometimes saw it was almost a a cross-generational pattern where someone had been raised in an environment also where there was a degree of domestic violence and aggression and a risk of someone getting in that kind of situation themselves. And as you can imagine, that can be an extraordinarily difficult problem
0: if someone is with a partner who is very aggressive or controlling. And so in that situation, if we're looking at the need for freedom to express valid needs and emotions, it strikes me that if you've got, for example, a dominant controlling partner, potentially they're not going to be so ready to listen to What you have to say in a lot of situations, you know, like they might be at the whim of their emotions a lot of the time and and that can be quite powerful. Like there's a a term in Football Dad that they talk about where if you've got a, a team that's basically, you know, tackling a lot, they've got their defensive game right on point, they talk about it as creating perceived pressure and I wonder if that's maybe a little bit of a part of it too where if someone has such a, a dominant and controlling personality, it's not necessarily they're saying, you know, do this in this situation or, you know, I'm not going to listen to you or, it's, you know, it's not worth complaining about that sort of thing. But at the same time, you might think, oh, maybe I don't have space to bring this up or I'm not able to bring this up in a way where I'll be basically validated and listened to properly.
1: Yes, that idea of perceived pressure, certainly when someone's got the subjugation schema, they're in a relationship where that applies then In that situation, they're afraid of something. They're afraid of something that might happen to them, particularly a fear of being punished or a fear of being abandoned. And that leads people to not express their needs or interests in a couple of different ways. First of all, the person might not say what they want or what they prefer in a situation. And apart from that, people tend to suppress their emotions more generally as though they don't have the same right as other people to have feelings and express what they want. And that's where a very important part of therapy is helping create the circumstances and also the practice where the person's more ready to act on the idea that maybe they've got as much right to have feelings and preferences as anyone else but certainly to allow themselves more room to express some of that. And that sometimes means taking care in choosing partners who will be more listening and validating
0: and accepting of them. And I suppose practically you can in some ways see how this not even necessarily develops but maybe perpetuates over time where if you do have a a dominant partner or or someone who is a little bit controlling and they say, oh, you know, let's do this. Or maybe you think, oh, it's it's just going to be easier to do it in that situation rather than to, you know, go through the whole song and dance of having them angry and and try and change my mind in a certain way. And so I wonder if over time there could be a, a sense that you know, it's maybe even easier for someone not to bring up their own feelings and rather just to go along with the, I suppose, suggestions of the other person, even if they're not optimal for us.
1: Yes, and that's what tends to happen. And actually thinking about it now, I often came across this problem when I started working as a therapist actually in the early 80s. This is actually what indirectly got me into anger management therapy because I was seeing a number of depressed, mainly depressed women in their 30s and 40s and a lot of it was that they were more passive and compliant in their reactions so they weren't getting their needs met that's why they were more depressed and so we worked on what was commonly emphasized at the time assertiveness therapy people being able to say i think this i want that i'd prefer such and such now that soon was obvious that it was becoming a problem because their partners weren't ready for that often their partners would be again like angry and and uh, forceful and not used to the person speaking up and that's when I realized that if I was going to work with these many wives dealing with depression and looking to speak up a little bit more I had to also see the husbands the partners and say hey if Your partner, if your wife is going to follow the therapy we're doing here with a chance to become less depressed, then it's important that there's room for her to be able to express her emotions or thoughts on things and to be accepting of that somewhat. Now, a number of partners, a number of husbands in that situation saw the point of it. They saw that could be a win-win and they'd accept that. But then there were also people that I met who it was more clear that they had this controlling or dominating pattern often associated with aggressive behaviour. And actually it was there that we started the anger management groups. It was partly identifying those more aggressive men or people with problems with managing their anger initially from having met their partners who were overly compliant. So yeah, that was actually indirectly how I got into the anger management area for many years.
0: Well, there's a couple of things there that come to mind. First of all, it, it strikes me that, well, A, having maybe issues with schemas, it doesn't necessarily just affect on us. Like this is a, a good example where it can affect a relationship, it can affect a family, something that I suppose comes up again and again and again and is going to create multiple issues for us over the course of time the other thing is that that strikes me as maybe a bit of an example of of surrender if we go back to our surrender avoidance compensation that we spoke a fair bit about last week so the idea of surrender being basically that we we promulgate the pattern in a way it's something that comes up again and again and again Uh, avoidance we basically avoid situations that activate that schema so we avoid situations where those feelings those negative feelings are going to come up for us And then overcompensation, we act as if the schema doesn't exist. We act as if, you know, we're unaffected by whatever the situation is. So you mentioned a little bit there in terms of an example for surrender for subjugation. So was that an example for surrender?
1: Yes, it it would be. For example, someone choosing... A controlling partner, consciously or unconsciously, and then being very compliant, not expressing their needs. That's giving into the scheme and that's allowing oneself to be subjugated. Whereas, yes, avoidance would be staying apart from relationships more generally. But it's interesting how an overcompensation pattern can happen. So, overcompensation is when someone, if you like, fights the scheme or the pattern or acts as though it's not so. So, they might act very forcefully. How might that happen? Well, there was a remarkable situation that also showed how there can be a dynamic in relationships. There was a time in those early days when a couple saw some social work colleagues of mine. And in this case, again, it was the husband who was quite physically aggressive. But he responded very well to early therapy and within like a couple of months, he showed much greater Management, if you like, he had much greater control over his aggressive impulses. He wasn't being physically forceful. And then my colleagues were absolutely surprised when, in that situation, the wife got a baseball bat and really hit him hard with it. And that was quite remarkable because that's an example of, well, overcompensation having been subjugated before and putting up with all sorts of difficulty, but it showed there was a complex dynamic in that kind of relationship and they both had to work at a different kind of pattern then for their relationship to be able to continue in any kind of healthy way. And so they followed through some of that in therapy, recognising they both needed to make changes, although in any situation where someone is physically aggressive, they're the one who has to take the primary responsibility for that behaviour.
0: And that's a a very interesting example because I suppose it illustrates as well that potentially we can be comfortable with our schemas at times in terms of for that that lady in that example that you just used, well, things potentially got a lot better for her without her, her husband being physically abusive, but it still caused her to act in a way that was different. So is it the case that even if we're potentially in a situation, potentially involves maybe some problems around one of the schemas, even if it's not maybe the optimal situation for us, is there a situation where we could, I suppose, feel comfort and not necessarily want things to change, even though there is a schema that's activated at that time?
1: Well, I think people can get caught up in their current circumstances also and become a bit passive about it and a bit used to it in some way. But that is an example of where, often in therapy settings too, it's important not just to consider an individual but reactions of those around them because sometimes problem patterns that they occur in a relationship or a wider family setting, it's not just the individual that reinforces that problem.
0: And the last one on subjugation, before we go on to the next schema, but I suppose it relates to all the schemas in a way. Look, it strikes me with subjugation as a schema. For example, if you are in the stage of surrender and, you know, you might choose a dominant partner, it might not even necessarily be your first relationship that includes dominant partner, well, over time, are you more likely to almost graduate, if that makes sense, onto the point of overcompensation? Like It strikes me that overcompensation could be something that essentially builds up from surrendering for a long time maybe feeling resentful at not being able to express yourself in a certain way and so it's almost like the needle moves too far the other way and people can respond more forcefully but it is a situation that started with surrender if that makes sense Well,
1: certainly a number of people that if they've, if you like, put up with a lot of difficulty for a long time and then they've felt that their needs haven't been met, then it is a little bit more likely that from time to time some kind of anger or forceful reaction will come out. But look, I will just actually mention another example that comes to mind where maybe inadvertently it actually did really help. I was seeing a lady many years ago and she was very compliant in her relationship And she had a background I would say where there was a threat of abandonment like her mother at times in distress would get in the car and drive off and this woman as a young girl would sometimes really have the feeling her mother wasn't going to come back. And I think that led her to be more vulnerable in later relationship to think well if she acted in a way that her partner didn't like or didn't go along with what he wanted then there's a risk of losing the relationship. Well, anyway, at one stage her husband had an affair and she was clearly very distressed about this and I think this had been going on for a little while and she knew about it. Then one day apparently she picked up this saucepan and just smashed it down on the stove and she was wildly angry with her husband and just said exactly what she thought about him having this affair and how upset she was. Now, remarkably, even though we could call that a kind of overcompensation it was in a sense very forceful kind of reaction in that setting it was actually somewhat fitting unfortunately what happened is this gave her husband such a shock how forcefully she'd reacted that he stopped reflected on his behavior he discontinued the affair and I know for a fact that they lived pretty happily uh, in their relationship for many many years afterwards And so that was a time when actually something needed to change that pattern that gave her a little bit more authority. And in that situation, it was from her expressing her frustration and understandable anger much more directly.
0: Well, as you say, it seems there is maybe an overcompensatory element to that. But at the same time, it is also, I suppose, transcending the surrender element of the schema too so that's an interesting example but if we go into self sacrifice so the next of the schema that relates to freedom to express valid needs and emotions what self-sacrifice is a schema
1: okay so self-sacrifice is very much having a focus on meeting the needs of other people but in some ways being a bit self-denying whilst doing that so that's at the expense of people meeting their own needs or interests And so in a number of family settings, people will be very sensitive and attuned to the needs of others. I actually saw that sometimes as a cross-generational pattern with trauma. For example, I can remember one lady who was a very competent academic. But she also had recurrent depressions through her adult life. A lot of it was from being somewhat self-sacrificing and not having her needs met so much. Now, she was raised in the family of a father who was a war veteran and I think that she was from a young age so empathic and attuned and sensitive she picked up on her father's pain and part of that was she would pick up more if you like painful feelings almost through the air beyond what her father would express in terms of his post-traumatic stress kind of reactions But I think that that also led her to have a pattern of being attuned to others and very giving to others at times of not meeting her own needs. Look, I'll just mention with this as well, self-sacrifice is one of the most common schema for people who work as therapists. Another is unrelenting standards that we'll talk about next time. But self-sacrifice, that notion of being attuned to others, so it can almost be... Really, an extended form of compassion. It often starts with compassion, this internal drive to look to help others feel better or relieve them of their pain or difficulty. But when it comes at the cost of the individual, not being able to express or meet their needs so much then that can be difficult and so we can imagine another common pattern would be say mothers raising several children often very giving and nurturing but sometimes forgetting to meet their own needs and that can then unfortunately lead to the mother being more disposed to anxiety reactions or depression or whatever from not looking after her well-being so much.
0: Well, there's a couple of things there that's so interesting about the intergenerational, the cross-generational aspect of it. And as you're describing that there, I wonder if the schemas are a, I suppose, vehicle in some ways for intergenerational trauma in terms of if you've gone through something that maybe causes you to have some issues with the schemas. Like we talk about intergenerational trauma, but I wonder if what that is, is maybe suffering to some degree or experiencing some issues based on the schemas of someone in your family who's maybe gone through some some trauma in a certain way they've picked up some some schemas and so you're almost getting the kind of second layer effect of that it's not necessarily that you've got direct contact with the traumatic event yourself but it might be the effects of the traumatic event which can lead to some issues with the schemas and then in some ways that's what you're interfacing with, if that makes sense. Yes, actually, I think that is
1: part of how cross-generational trauma uh, is enacted. For example, if people have gone through very severe long-term trauma problems that might have been repeated childhood sexual abuse, it might have been uh, being a soldier in a war setting and developing post-traumatic stress disorder, then that can lead people to be more emotionally inhibited at one level or more volatile at another level that would tend to lead to more mistrust or abuse in family settings and so someone raised in that environment is more likely to have maybe a mistrust schema or if someone through their complicated reactions of trauma, was not so available for their family, even maybe abandoned their family. There could be more of an abandonment schema in the next generation. But also this is an example where self-sacrifice can come up because it did strike me that the people that I'd seen who, as clients, I thought, hey, it seems they've got some kind of lingering trauma reaction. I wonder what it might be. And I'm exploring their history for past trauma. Uh, can't find it there. But then if I asked if a parent had significant post-traumatic stress, often that pattern would come out. So this feeling of a suspicion, there's trauma in the background, it would be the previous generation. For example, someone I know, his father was a policeman in the Middle East and a number of his his father's friends were killed by bombing and in a situation where it was like a, a war zone and so again the person I saw was quite a sensitive individual and was prone to recurrent depressions through life and I couldn't help but feel that he picked up some of the unexpressed feeling from a parent that he'd maybe identified with in certain kind of ways and maybe the parent was inhibited in expressing some of those emotions but still they would be in the air for a sensitive, compassionate person to pick up on. It was often the empathic, sensitive kids from the next generation who were more affected by that. But I think otherwise if in a family there were more volatile emotions or problem behaviours associated with trauma reactions, then sometimes it would be transmitted through the attitudes, the schema that people would develop.
0: And that point that you made about, say, sensitive, compassionate kids, like I think that's something to really highlight with self-sacrifice. Like, I can think of a lot of people who are self-sacrificing to some degree. I wouldn't necessarily say they've got issues that need schema therapy, but particularly with self-sacrifice, it strikes me that, well, quite often people could be quite good people on the surface in terms of wanting to go out of their way to help others, but... With self-sacrifice, it strikes me that there's maybe a unilateral element to it in terms of someone could think, oh, you know, I have to help this person and without necessarily asking them, they could then, you know, for example, go out of their way to do something and where that, that seems that it could lead to issues. Like if we go to surrender avoidance over compensation, for example, like if someone was to surrender, which with self-sacrifice, it, it strikes me as maybe just being someone who isn't going to put themselves first in any way they're going to go out of their way to help others even at potentially a cost to themselves at times well if that's not validated and reciprocated well over time you could think you know to be honest stuff stuff doing all that for everyone now like i wonder if it's almost a little bit like your resentment bucket fills up if that makes sense like you're going out of your way to do all these seemingly nice things for people they haven't necessarily asked you to do them but at the same time that you know they're nice things and so if that's not getting I suppose acknowledged recognized well after a while you could just think you know what's stuff you I've done all this stuff for you and, and the other person might think hold on you know I never asked you to do that I didn't even realize that you were going to those lengths and so I wonder if this is maybe a good example of where potentially surrender, avoidance and overcompensation can link together because then you might think, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to avoid all relationships that call on me to be a supportive, helpful person because in the past, you know, I've gone out of my way to do that and it's, you know, it's just burnt me in the process.
1: Yes and and so yeah that would be an example of avoidance, steering clear of relationships to not get caught in that kind of situation but I think like you're suggesting yeah overcompensation can happen when the person's been giving and giving for such a long time, there's such an imbalance of give and take that the person then gets really angry with the people that they've been giving to or another example is when people think look stuff it i'm not going to do any more for you at all and then they just sort of decide that that that's it and they'll stop doing anything for that other person which if they'd previously been in a caring role or something like that that could be fairly dramatic and look i will say something generally now about caring roles now our community benefits an enormous amount from people who in whatever kind of way serve as carers it might be caring for ill relatives also people can have very strongly caring roles through their work for example assisting people with particular disabilities and i know some people who have worked in that area who do almost seem to have a bit much of a self-sacrifice schema because it's not just in their work but in their family relationships they're giving so much to other people it's like they forget to acknowledge their own needs and might even push themselves physically also to the point where they're more likely to either get injured or otherwise just not really look out for themselves as much as they could. But something about caring generally, it's important to consider, again, who cares for the carers and for people in caring roles to be getting something back in terms of support from others, and that includes good friendships, but also making time for themselves to do things that they enjoy or they like and hopefully also finding meaning in what they're doing rather than just being obligated because there's something quite significant about caring roles. If people are in stressful caring roles, it tends to be bad for your health because it tends to lead to an inflammation response over time, not that dissimilar to people who are going through different kind of stresses or losses or even certain forms of trauma. However, if someone has a high level of what we call eudaimonic well-being, in other words, they're giving to other people is part of their philosophy, and they get satisfaction from that. It's within some level of balance. Hopefully people are also finding things that they like doing in their own life and treating themselves in some way. When people have that philosophy, where they feel good about helping others to a certain point, and they're considering their own needs, then people in caring roles do not have that problematic inflammation response. So it's all partly about balance.
0: Well, that's fascinating that there is that, I suppose, physiological aspect to a, a caring response in some ways. And the other example that really strikes me there is, is volunteer roles. Like I've got a friend who is a member of a sports club and You know, with sports clubs, there's just the expectation that things are going to get done and, you know, there's going to be a game on Saturday with enough players, all that sort of thing. And I know for a fact that they put in so many hours towards this sports club. And, you know, it's even someone with a young family sort of thing. And so self-sacrifice strikes me as a schema that whilst, you know not necessarily saying that there's people who, who have issues that they need to get therapy for. It's, it's one that, you know, even in our society that has a lot of sports clubs in Australia, for example, there can be a lot of people that are maybe put into a situation that, well, calls upon a bit of self-sacrifice. And so I suppose one of the things here is, is just to be aware of that and to be aware that there are things that you can do in terms of validating your own needs.
1: And also just to appreciate our volunteers, Know, appreciate what they give and how so many things work because so many people have volunteering roles. Actually, it's a very strong part of our society these days. Many people have volunteering roles and it really helps the strength of our society. So just giving some acknowledgement to those people and appreciation often makes a big difference.
0: Absolutely. Oh, I couldn't agree with that more, Dad. But if we go to the next schema, approval, seeking and recognition. So what's this schema? Okay, now that's a very common one that comes up in
1: psychology because also the early CBT approaches like rational emotive therapy we've talked about before and early cognitive therapy had a strong emphasis on concerns about approval versus disapproval. So often people would have problems with social anxiety or acting passively in situations, more inclined to be depressed if they're not in a sense expressing their own interests and needs as spontaneously or freely as they might, then people are more prone to those kind of difficulties. So that means that one thing that really helps us to feel well and happy and productive is to be able to be ourselves and put forward our interests in certain ways. But what if people are extra concerned about getting approval or recognition from others that they're so focused on other people's response and reactions to them that they're losing sight of what they want to do or, well, if you like, their more authentic selves. So there are two different types that comes up with this approval-seeking or recognition schema. One is seeking approval itself to be liked or to fit in. And that might be where people think, well, hey, if other people admire me, if I do things to get their approval, then they'll pay attention to me and then I'm Okay. It's a bit like, well, I'm not okay unless people are showing me that approval. And that's where, again, people are more vulnerable to depression. Again, if there's a relationship breakup or something like that, there's an over-focus on other people's reaction. But there's also a second type of approval-seeking, which is more a kind of recognition-seeking, which is more related to status, looks, maybe achievements or appearance a bit more of that look at me, look at me kind of situation where people are looking to get recognition from others often to compensate for deeper down feeling defective in some way or maybe in the past people might have experienced a degree of emotional deprivation in their families, even abandonment, and people might have this underneath kind of idea, hey, it's only by being special that I'll really be validated enough by other people and feel like i really count so it's losing sight of that acceptance of being oneself because of being overly focused on looking to get that recognition from other people
0: and this is something that oh, i think we see quite commonly in terms of say people who are, are people pleasers in a way like people might be doing things and you sort of think hold on i I don't know if you know if that's the best thing to be doing for you in this situation in terms of you know maybe you haven't considered your own thoughts and feelings and it also strikes me that there's a balance to be had with approval seeking and recognition too because you know there's almost this little bit of a sentiment that some people put out there sometimes you know i don't care what anyone thinks about me and i I disagree with that in a way in terms of you know I, i think that would be quite a isolated existence in some ways if you didn't care at all what other people think about you but it just strikes me that maybe when it comes up as an issue for our schemers it's almost when that goes too far that idea of you know being a real people pleaser you know really wanting people to like you and and not necessarily having a sense of you know there's going to be some people that like me there's going to be some people that don't and you know if i just be me then you know i'm more likely to find people who sort of fit in with me and my things about me like it seems that some people maybe just get caught up in, in almost wanting everyone in every situation to like them and, and approve of what they're doing.
1: Yes, I think that's a good point that it's about balance because like, when you think about it, as we've talked about before, a lot of the goals of early adult life are finding some kind of balance between going for things that you want and that suit you but still being able to get on with other people. Now, being able to get on with other people is partly acceptance with your tribe and if we think even through evolution if we go back say 50,000 years if you weren't accepted by your tribe you'd be dead basically so to some extent looking for a certain level of approval could be hardwired into us at least a basic kind of level of approval but again that can go too far because often We've got a fair bit of scope to be ourselves as an individual and have opinions or wants or preferences that are somewhat different from our friends or partners or uh, colleagues and yet there's room for us to have those kind of differences and still be able to get on. And that's the balance when we can be ourselves and appreciate other people being themselves as well but you can still get on without, in a sense, needing other people's approval so much. So yes, it's about that kind of relative balance.
0: And so if you look at surrender, avoidance and overcompensation for approval seeking and recognition, what would the surrender reaction be?
1: Okay, well, the surrender will be making a whole lot of extra effort over and above what might otherwise be needed to try and get other people's approval and do things that other people might like. It's this external focus rather than being more internally motivated and driven by what suits you, say drawing on your own character strengths or whatever. It's more looking at what other people might want from you and then looking to give them that. So it's being somewhat passive in certain kind of ways. It's almost maybe being a bit of a teddy bear in some situations, people pleasing, going to the nth degree in looking to please other people, were you missing out on what you want yourself? Yeah, that would be one of the surrendering kind of aspects. Or if it's a recognition schema, then surrendering to it would be doing things to impress other people. Look at me, look at me, look at uh, my, I don't know, shiny new car, Uh, look at how much money I make, look at this status that I have, and in a sense showing off in that way. That would be surrendering to the schema.
0: Well, Dad, you know, it's no uh, no secret with you and, and maybe some people who've listened to the podcast that I'm no fan of reality TV shows <laughs> and it strikes me that in some ways, if you had an approval and recognition schema, surrendering to it could be going on a reality TV show and, you know, I think there's some ethical issues with a lot of those shows, not to get specific on any one, but at the same time, it just strikes me that, you know, almost playing with that to a degree and like overcompensation in this situation it seems you know it could be basically acting in a certain way where no one's going to approve of so that you know you think well that that was it was on my terms that people didn't approve of me in that situation and you know it seems that all these you know reality tv shows have a bit of a villain and quite often the producers i believe are basically pretty unilateral in how they edit that tv show to uh make someone appear as the villain and as we're going through this it just strikes me it's a little bit it's a little bit yucky in some ways to present a situation that's going to be appealing for someone with a a recognition schema and then painting them as the villain and maybe even encouraging them to take on this role it's a bit of an overcompensation, but this role where, you know, they're they're not necessarily seeking people's approval, it's more that they're doing things to ensure that they're not disapproved of in their most authentic self. Yes, I think that's a good
1: point in a way. Like if someone actually goes out of their way to be a villain, but deep down they're really wanting that recognition or approval, that would be an overcompensation kind of schema. But I think that you do make that uh, broader point about current reality TV Unfortunately, it really does seem to exploit this aspect of people's interest in approval or recognition-seeking. A number of people who have gone on those shows have been quite distressed afterwards because of how they have been portrayed. They've gone on hoping that it'll satisfy that need, if you like, to be liked, and then it turns out maybe something quite different, and a number of people have been very distressed after that experience.
0: Oh, I can imagine that'd be a horrible situation. And the other one that comes to mind is maybe some element of social media there too, Dad, in terms of maybe they're a bit of a breeding ground for issues maybe with people who are seeking approval and recognition. But, Dad, if we go into the next need, which basically relates to a family of schemers. So I believe the need is spontaneity and play. And that can lead us to issues with overvigilance and inhibition. So... What do we mean by that, Dad? Okay, look, just before
1: I answer that, I'm just going to back up for a second because what I notice is we haven't mentioned the title for this episode, which we're calling it Expressing Ourselves Freely, or The Essentials of Schema Therapy. We're continuing that theme, Expressing Ourselves Freely, because the schema we just described is where we don't express ourselves freely because we're so directed on other people's reactions, hence the subjugation, the self-sacrifice, the approval schema. But there's another way that we might not express ourselves freely. It's not just to do with other directedness or how other people react to us. It's more an inhibition on ourselves to be spontaneous or playful. And so there are a few different ways that we can inhibit ourselves that way. One is by being pessimistic, seeing the glass as half empty. That's going to be somewhat inhibiting or restrictive on our mood and reactions or being emotionally inhibited and also punitiveness so we'll describe those ones but let's start with pessimism or the negativity pessimism schema now the idea of this is if we always see the glass as half empty as things is going to turn out badly things will be wrong being a bit of a worry wart and we're always thinking of how things might slip up or not turn out well basically that's going to be really inhibiting on ourselves. It's actually going to also be a downer for other people in our relationships. And we might be aware of that. We might be aware of friends or family members that we've spent some time with. And afterwards, you feel a little bit dragged down, dare I say, in mood because there's that level of negativity that comes through. Or in a client situation they might recognise that they often feel low and flat and it's very difficult for them to see the brighter side of life. It's too easy for them to see how things might go wrong and that's that pessimism, that negativity schema.
0: Well, it's a good pick-up about the uh, the name. I forgot to mention the name of the episode this week. I'm uh, glad you're doing my job there for me, Dad, but I just wanted to mention something about overvigilance and inhibition because as I was thinking about this This week, the main time that I reckon I've heard of the term inhibition is to do with alcohol. For example, you know, you basically drink alcohol to get rid of your inhibitions in a certain way. And it strikes me that, you know, maybe all of us in terms of in Australian society have a little bit of over-vigilance in terms of, you know, if we maybe feel the need to, to drink, to enjoy ourselves in certain occasions, potentially that comes from a feeling of over-vigilance at times. So it strikes me that maybe we can all relate to, and, and my hand's probably in the air for this one, Dad, all having a little bit of a sense of over-vigilance at times because otherwise we wouldn't drink alcohol to promote that sense of spontaneity and play.
1: Yes, well, what you're saying there, Relates quite directly to the emotional inhibition schema that we'll get back to shortly. But that's one of the ways that people can overcompensate for being a bit inhibited or overcontrolled using alcohol to try and relieve themselves of that or become more spontaneous, so to speak, but in an artificial kind of way or in a way that can be overdone. But getting back to the negativity and pessimism schema, it's more the restrictive kind of impact it has when our focus narrows when we're looking at what's going to be going wrong. It's the opposite of what positive psychology encourages, which is an optimistic attitude. We know that an optimistic attitude is good for our physical as well as our mental health and well-being, and it actually helps us broaden and build our emotions we look up we look outward we have a broader overview our chins up if you like with an orientation response to the world we're taking things in we're open to things and we think a lot of things that we experience can be good pessimism is the opposite we narrow our focus we're more likely to look down we're overly attuned to threat and danger maybe in some ways as well But it's more looking at the downside of things. And that certainly robs people of joy. It can lead people to be more prone to what we call dysthymia, which is a long-term, depressive-type, lower mood kind of feeling that people might have more days than not for an extended period without necessarily being clinically depressed. And I suppose maybe a little bit like Eeyore in Winnie the Pooh that sort of character who can be a little bit more flat or down in mood.
0: And if we look at surrender, avoidance and overcompensation with negativity and pessimism, like there's an element of pessimism that... I don't necessarily think it's such a bad thing. I think it gets a little bit underrated at times. And, like, Dad, I'd probably consider myself an optimist in some ways, like, probably like to. Like, when it comes to my sporting teams, I'm probably more of a cynic, but most things I try and be a little bit optimistic about things. But I also think in order to be optimistic, you almost need to be a little bit pessimistic first, in terms, you almost need to, I suppose, understand the situation maybe, you know, warts and all, for lack of a better term. And then from there, you can go, yeah, but actually, I don't know, maybe that's just me sort of thing. But I think at the same time, if we can start almost with a pessimistic approach, get everything out on the table and go, right, this is what we're dealing with. Now, how can we be optimistic with it? Well, to me, that's kind of what optimism is. Like if we're just blindly optimistic the whole time without looking at What's well, possibly negative. Well, it's, it's blind optimism and, and it's almost, you know, thinking everything's going to be, you know, unicorns and rainbows, for lack of a better term. But if we start with that pessimistic approach, then we can almost wade through that and go, well, you know what, actually, I'm, I'm going to focus on these things which are a little bit more positive or optimistic. But if we look at surrender, for example, it strikes me that maybe if someone isn't able to get to that stage where they go, okay, we've laid out all maybe the negative aspects of things, What are we going to pick out and maybe focus on and look to cultivate a little bit with our attitude to be a little bit more optimistic? If people maybe struggle with that a little bit, I wonder if that's the surrender aspect of a negativity and pessimism schema.
1: Yes, well, I think that surrendering to a negativity and pessimism schema is not just from being realistic and acknowledging some of the warts and all like you're suggesting, and look, I'll say as an aside as well, what you're mentioning earlier, that's where Martin Seligman, the founder of positive psychology, started off. He said that, if anything, he was a bit pessimistic in outlook in some ways, but he said nobody better to study optimism than someone who, underneath it all, was more naturally a bit of a pessimist. And in a way, what he was saying is be realistic about this stuff. Don't just be what we call poly ish just look at all the bright side, the unicorns kind of thing in an unrealistic way. It helps to be realistic. But we know that people do function better, feel better, get on with other people better when they do see the glass as half full. So in a sense, technically and factually, the glass is half empty and it is half full. By focusing on the half-full notion, it helps us be more forward-looking, hopeful, our mood to be, if you like, more regulated, and we tend to act more effectively. So, yes, surrendering to a negativity scheme would be thinking, this will turn out badly and usually an exaggerated view of the negative. Focusing on the negative more selectively and, and preparing for the worst. Not just preparing for the worst but allowing for the best, but preparing for the worst and thinking, well, that's what's going to happen. That's surrendering to it. As opposed to avoidance of that schema would be not getting your hopes up in any way at all because you want to keep your expectations low. Rather than just thinking that things will turn out badly, Just don't get invested in it at all. Just don't have any particular hopes either way and maybe even not kind of engage with the situation or work towards some kind of solution. Just steer clear of it. Don't have too many hopes. Just settle for whatever's there, not really going for your goals as much.
0: And overcompensation, like if we go back to that idea that overcompensation is acting as if the schema doesn't exist. So I must admit it's a little bit confusing with negativity and pessimism because if we're looking at someone who has really strong pessimistic attitudes towards things we're acting as if the opposite exists would that be acting as if say like the the negativity isn't there so you know it's you wake up in the morning and it's raining and instead of thinking art bloody rainy i can't go for me walk you think oh how good it's raining this morning i can go out and get wet and it's going to be brilliant like is it, is it almost just basically looking at something that's negative but putting kind of a random positive flavor on it yes and look i think that
1: overcompensation response would tend to be a more brief one but people can be in a situation where they more blandly overlook the evidence for a downside in a situation. They might have reason to feel a bit more pessimistic. And if they have a, a pessimism schema, underneath it all, even if they're not fully admitting it to themselves, they think that something's going to turn out pretty badly. But they might almost pretend to themselves or act with other people around them as though, oh no, this will turn out all right, or no, all we need to do is like cross our fingers or something like that without taking any effective action to help that happen. So, again, I think that's a more uncommon reaction, an overcompensation reaction to the schema compared to like surrendering to it. But sometimes people do have this bland kind of outlook, even for a brief period of time, where it's kind of like pretending that everything will be okay. But deep down, they don't really believe it.
0: And if we go into the emotional inhibition schema, so I, I'll potentially jumped the gun when I got there a little bit before, but what's emotional inhibition in terms of schemas?
1: Okay, this is where someone tends to be pretty inhibited in their expression of emotions, so they're somewhat over-controlled. And that might come across in a relationship situation, that the person's not expressing warmth so much to their partner their partner might feel more questioning if they're loved because of the inhibition in their partner in expressing that now actually someone might have that emotional inhibition schema and genuinely have love for their partner but not be able to express it so effectively so it's that more over-controlled kind of situation and I can think of one example with this too where I saw a couple and the initial client, the wife in this relationship, had recurrent depression. Now, funnily enough, one of the things that complicated her depression is her husband, who is a very competent character, was probably somewhat emotionally overcontrolled. I think that he would have acknowledged that himself. Now, for the wife that was an extra complication again because it actually accentuated her feeling of being out of control and flaky but she also seemed to feel some maybe understandable frustration that her husband seemed so logical and ordered and maybe over-controlled and not expressive that maybe she felt a little less validated in the relationship in some ways but as part of the contrast in their in their manner and their way of expressing themselves that could be difficult now he would readily acknowledge the husband in that situation that he didn't necessarily have many close friends that he mixed with regularly whereas his his partner his wife even though she had longer term at times on and off difficulties with depression she was actually quite social and had many friends as well so he was kind of acknowledging that in his life that added another dimension to his life and the fact that she could be expressive was a good thing but I think that's where there was a downside in more ways than one not just for himself because I don't think that he felt it was so much of a problem for him it's more that it came up in that relationship setting
0: What strikes me that this is potentially something that probably and and hopefully even a little bit less common these days, but it, it potentially is something that comes up a bit more in men, I wonder about. And, you know, if I think maybe 50 years ago that maybe culture of emotion expression in men was maybe a little bit emotionally inhibited in terms of across the board in some ways. And so it strikes me that we're getting a little bit more enlightened in some ways with our emotional inhibition but also if we think about it in the context of needs not being met like say that the 20th century for example had a lot of conflict you know a lot of men would have gone away to war and experienced some horrible things so in some ways you can understand that they would be a little bit emotionally inhibited in that situation but now that we're maybe not going through that as much it, it does strike me that there's maybe a little bit more of a balance that we're ...in the process of, of maybe getting in terms of our, our society... ...in the way that maybe men express themselves and their feelings...
1: Yes, that is one thing that's definitely improved so much over the generations and over the decades. I've certainly seen that in the course of my career. Uh, young men like yourself are uh, much more ready and able and the culture supports that expression of feelings and spontaneity, that side of things, rather than just getting overly caught up in in logic and that rationality kind of thing. It could be way too overdone. But it's interesting what you mentioned in terms of, for example, War veterans, I can think of a number of war veterans who are very emotionally inhibited but because of the numbing reactions of trauma. And so there was one veteran who expressed that as clearly as anyone else I heard. He knew that his family, his children as well as his wife, experienced quite some pain at him being completely inexpressive at home he'd often be detached sit in a chair in another room away from other people but not express himself and he said to me that he experienced himself at home like he was a piece of furniture that's how little expressive he was he felt almost like people moved around him like he was a piece of furniture now unfortunately that was a particular trauma response but I also know a number of veterans in that situation who look to keep their feelings to themselves because they feared if they let out some of their pain or distress or even acknowledged some of their experience, they feared it would be toxic to other family members. It's almost like the trauma experiences they had would be contagious. Now, that was very unfortunate when they took that too far, because the family members would just feel a bit detached and almost like rejected or kept so distanced that they'd be distressed. And I found sometimes if in that situation a veteran was able to express some of their difficult experience, some of their reactions that led them to keep to themselves a fair bit, but also in their own way express their love or care or feeling for their family and that I would highlight that part of the reason they were keeping this distance is maybe in a misguided way, but to try and protect their family from this idea, this toxic, contagious feelings as though they would spill over then sometimes the veteran and family members that have tears in their eyes and recognise there actually was this love or interest there, it just hadn't been kind of consummated, if you like, or, or shown through expression. But there are a range of different ways that, unfortunately, there can be a problem with inhibiting feelings. And you mentioned something early on that I think is very important. A number of people who got caught up with, say, social anxiety concerned about how others would see them and then also be emotionally inhibited in certain ways they might even have had some kind of approval schema in some way they dealt with by avoiding other people but also being emotionally inhibited then they might be more prone to use alcohol you know several stubbies of beer for example before going out at night and socializing where they would feel they needed the alcohol beforehand to allow themselves to be more spontaneous or expressive rather than inhibited and I think like you suggested that could be a problem aspect in our culture a little bit more generally but I've especially noticed that with a number of younger people with social anxiety where they're using it excessively to we could say get lubricated in some kind of way and um, yeah that would be an example of overcompensation you know using that alcohol to mask the social anxiety and to try and um, uh, act as though they didn't have that schema but using that artificial means
0: and so if you look at surrender avoidance overcompensation of course you mentioned overcompensation there in terms of maybe relying on something like alcohol to allow us to express our feelings in a way surrender it strikes me as maybe the example that you mentioned before about the gentleman who, who felt like furniture in his own house in terms of he, he maybe didn't even connect with his emotion and his feelings in order to basically keep them hidden in a way and avoidance basically it, it seems quite straightforward with this one just avoiding those i suppose intimate situations where you know you Ah, whether it be prone to say I love you or, you know, something like that. It it strikes me that, yeah, avoiding basically any hint of kind of intimacy and and bringing intimacy into a friendship or relationship would be something that's avoiding.
1: Yes, by him being detached and sitting away from others, that was a kind of avoidance in himself. But the surrender would be his over-controlled way of expressing himself, including being over-controlled in not acknowledging some of his difficulties, which if he had conveyed, and when he did convey that, to family members, there was actually relief in some ways all around that people knew a bit where he was coming from and they were realising he wasn't just sort of reacting negatively to them. This was something, unfortunately, that he was caught up with in his own personality.
0: It seems an example that comes up a fair bit in movies and TV in terms of if someone has gone to war, for example. It's almost this... I wouldn't say cliche, but it is just something that comes up so often If of, you know, I'm not, I'm not talking about my experience. And then often maybe the main character is able to get through to them in a way that allows them to open up and share that experience a little bit more. But, yeah, a bit of a common one with people who have been to war, it seems. But if we go to the last schema, Dad, punitiveness. So what is punitiveness?
1: Okay, well, punitiveness is being harsh or punishing. Now, that may be to oneself... And that comes across when people are self harming, for example. We've talked before about an inner critic. People can have such a harsh inner critic, they're tearing strips off themselves and, in addition, maybe engaging in self harm in other ways. Whereas, again, punitiveness applied to others can be making very harsh judgments of others, being very punishing towards others, uh, being very unforgiving thinking that people deserve negative consequences for something going wrong in some way, not being very compassionate at all or forgiving, not really giving people the benefit of the doubt. So so it, it can also be related to something that we'll talk about more as the final schema we talk about in our next and final episode, unrelenting standards. But it's just the harsh judgment and punishment itself.
0: And this strikes me as something that, well, I suppose could happen in terms of if we go back to the almost broad basic idea about schemas that, you know, it's things that can happen in our childhood, maybe even outside of our control. Like, as a child, if you're internalising the situation around you and maybe there's an element to which you're being unfairly treated, well, there could be an element to which you think, hold on, when I did this, I got punished for it or I was left feeling in this certain way and so it's not fair that someone else can do, you know, a what well, seems on the surface the exact same thing, and not cop that same maybe negative consequence from it. It's almost as if they're not being punished for it like I am. So it just strikes me that this could be one that I suppose could develop if someone was growing up in a non optimal situation. Yes, well, actually, how I more
1: often encounter it is when the person is very self punishing, very harsh towards themselves commonly having been raised in an environment, a family home, where there was emotional abuse. So the person was invalidated from childhood, treated poorly, maybe called names, you know, negative consequences, treated harshly, maybe they're expected to do things or handle things as though they were older than they really were, maybe unrealistic expectations that way. But certainly if someone's had a very punitive parent, then they're at risk of internalising that. So that can come up sometimes, for example, in situations with dissociative disorders. I've seen a number of people who have that internal critic that's so harsh, it's almost like another part of themselves that can be really extreme and punishing. And sometimes it seems that's almost like an internalised, exaggerated model of, of a parent. So I'd also add that in therapy settings, often the people who come in for therapy are the ones who are very punishing towards themselves. People who are very punishing towards others, I would say, are somewhat less likely to come into therapy. I'm more likely to see, or psychologists are more likely to see, the people who've been negatively treated by them. So the family members of punitive parents, that kind of situation. And um, One thing I would say which is often uplifting is when people have been emotionally abused and they have a pattern of being punishing towards themselves. Most of the clients I've seen in that situation have a very strong desire and motivation to raise their children in a different way. We call it turning things around in a generation. They recognise the harm towards them of that invalidation, the being called names, the negative treatment, and they really do not want to pass that on to their children at times they might lose their temper and get very punishing towards themselves for acting poorly compared to what they think but generally they're often a very loving and considerate and look to do what they can for their own children i would say that's one of the more uplifting aspects of therapy with a number of people with these more problem patterns from childhood if it has been emotional abuse when they've come in for therapy and they're following through they're usually making a real effort to change that punitiveness towards others and then our focus is often more on the self-compassion learning not to be so punitive towards themselves including them appreciating their efforts to raise their children in a more enlightened way
0: well i think that's an important point it seems to me about punitiveness for example like there's a sort of modern phenomenon in some ways which i struggle to get my head around a little bit for example if there's a sports person on a field and they do something, you know, maybe make a, a mistake, you know, which happens with absolutely everyone in every job. But, you know, they're in centre stage in front of everyone. And, you know, some, you know, goober from social media basically sends them a message saying, you know, F you, you cost me my multi, blah, 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 F this, F that. And it's sort of like, why on earth would you go out of your way to look someone up, to message them something so negative and and oftentimes it's, you know, it's racist and it's these horrible things and I must admit it's something that I just, I I can't really get my head around You know, I love a punt and sometimes you, you know, get a little bit frustrated if you're one leg short and you're same game multi or whatever but at the same time it's like if you can't watch a game of sport without, you know, being compelled to message someone something negative if they stuff something up, you probably shouldn't be watching the game of sport. So what strikes me about that there is that you know, something that I basically could never relate to in a way. Obviously, you get a little bit frustrated at times, but you never go out of your way to message someone. I wonder if there is that aspect of those people are so punishing towards themselves that they just basically externalise that in a way. Like, you know, you don't necessarily want to you know, make ill of anyone, but I wonder if anyone is in that situation where someone's just almost out of the blue, send them something really negative. You can almost take a little bit of... Comforts maybe the wrong word but maybe it eases the pain a little bit to know that whatever punishment they're enforcing on you there's probably a degree to which you know they're certainly feeling it themselves and potentially you know even more punishing towards themselves in a way yes actually i think often what's happening there is it's an
1: overcompensation for a defectiveness schema someone's in a sense got low self-esteem or somewhat negative view of themselves that might be somewhat unconscious and they're overcompensating for that, for finding fault with other people and being very punitive and harsh and judgmental towards someone else. So it's got that kind of quality to it.
0: And so if we look at surrender, avoidance, overcompensation for punitiveness, surrender just strikes me as maybe someone who's overly punitive, who is quite harsh in their responses when people make any sort of a mistake Is that the case? Yes, very much. And
1: that might be either very punitive to themselves, like they won't forgive themselves if they slip up or make some kind of mistake, or it can be directed towards others. And that's when I think it's even more problematic. As I say, we might not see that person in therapy, but we'll see a number of their family members perhaps, and that's when they're very harsh and judgmental
0: and unforgiving towards others. And so, avoidance, if we think of it in terms of we're avoiding situations that might activate the schema in a way, would that be basically avoiding situations where we might fail in order to not have that super harsh, critical self talk? Yes, it will tend to be avoiding
1: situations where there's some risk of being judged or evaluated by other people. So people might avoid certain social situations or roles or tasks where they feel that they're at risk of being judged. And also could include steering clear of relationships if you think that others might be harsh and judgmental as you've experienced
0: in the past. And overcompensation, so if you think of it in terms of acting as if the opposite is true, acting as if we're maybe not a a very punishing person, I wonder if that's maybe being in a situation where maybe someone's worthy of of being pulled up in a certain way and and we feel that someone's acted wrongly towards us, I wonder if acting as if the opposite is true is almost going, you know, I'm I'm not going to open that can of worms, I'm not going to give them any sense of negativity because then maybe this really sort of punishing, harsh person who I am underneath can can kind of come out. How's the interplay with overcompensation there? Well I suppose if the person
1: avoided expressing some reasonable uh if you like pulling someone up with something, yes, there would be an element of overcompensation and avoidance, I suppose. But if we look at overcompensation, that would be almost the opposite. The person acts forgiving, but they're not really forgiving. On the surface, superficially, they're saying, oh look, oh, that's okay, that's just fine, but they're still feeling angry and deep down they're feeling punishing towards the other person that might come across indirectly in other ways.
0: And so we're almost coming to the end of today's episode, Dad, but it strikes me with what you described there in terms of maybe acting, you know, forgiving but still feeling sort of angry inside. It strikes me with surrender, avoidance, overcompensation. Like there's an element to which it's the behaviour of, you know, on the surface – almost like at a superficial level, this is the behaviour that someone's done, this is how they've acted, but there does strike me to be this real internalisation aspect to it. In terms of even with overcompensation, it might be, you know, you're acting in the complete opposite way as if the schema wasn't true, but at the end of the day, it is. And so it's almost like underneath everything, we're still going to have these negative feelings, we're still going to struggle with certain things, and even if we do act in a way for a little while that you know, maybe gets us through a particular situation, well, if we think about ourselves and how we feel in that situation, well, it's not necessarily going to be the most authentic response in terms of looking at exactly how we feel and behaving based on that.
1: Yes, and what you bring up there, I think that's a really important point, the notion of being open and honest with ourselves even if some of our reactions aren't very virtuous or it's not like a great way of handling things. But being honest with that is just so helpful because it can help lead to change. And this is where I think Carl Jung had such an important point he was making when he talked about all of us have a shadow side. All of us have a persona or a self that we show to the world. That's our face that might have an element of a mask to it in some ways. It's the more superficial thing about how we present ourselves to others. That could be how we look and our manner on the surface. It might be some of the roles that we have. That's our persona, our face to the world. Our shadow side is the aspects of ourselves that we don't accept. And so in considering these schema, even if people don't have a full-on schema, just to be open to thinking, oh, look, I might have a little bit of an imbalance in that direction. I might be a bit harsh towards others in some ways or otherwise towards myself. Or I might get caught up in negativity a little bit more than maybe others might realise, but I know internally from my reactions. If we're open to acknowledging our shadow side, then we can have a more rounded view of ourselves and more balance in our behavior because ultimately what we're looking to do is to develop ourselves, like ourself being, if you like, a more fuller authentic aspect where where, Aware of our own needs and interests and able to express that. That's the theme of this podcast. That's what helps. Whereas if people inhibit that in some ways or they're just focused on what other people think or our face to the world or how others think we'll react, we really lose something. And a whole lot of therapy is around not getting sucked into too much emphasis on our persona, not just pretending we don't have a shadow side, acknowledging the warts and all to some extent, but also in the interest of developing a fuller and more healthy self. Spontaneously acknowledging our interests, looking to express our preferences and hopes and feelings at the time, expressing them in positive ways to other people that we care about, being a big part of that, but also allowing ourselves to have some imbalances, if you like, in our personality or some things that maybe are are not optimal because then they're less likely to have such a disruptive
0: impact. Well I think that's so true. And and the other thing that I look at these schemas that we've spoken about today and even unrelenting standards, which we'll speak about in the next episode. And it really does strike me that there's a balance to be had with some of this stuff. Like subjugation, you know, we don't necessarily want to go into every situation that we're in and look to dominate everyone. Self sacrifice, you can get a lot out of doing things for other people at times, and they don't even need to acknowledge you. Sometimes it can be really worthwhile just doing something for someone else and knowing that you've gone out of your way to do that. Approval seeking and recognition, well, there can be times when that can be a, not necessarily a bad thing, I think, and maybe it can go too far in some ways, but. In terms of looking at how you can appeal to people broadly in certain situations, I don't think that's necessarily such a bad thing all the time. Even negativity and pessimism, we spoke about it in terms of Martin Seligman. Coming from that perspective at first can often help you, I suppose, pick out some of the good in things. Emotional inhibition. I think at times it's maybe good that people don't necessarily just give in to the whims of their emotions at all times like emotions can be so powerful and if we're able to almost step back and look at things a little bit more logically in some situations well that can be a real help and then punitiveness well there's an element to standing up for ourselves that it strikes me that is a little bit to do with punitiveness in terms of we don't necessarily want to just be punishing to people all the time but if we do experience basically an indiscretion in a certain way and if we're maybe even standing up for someone or something that we really believe in, well, at times it can be good to call upon maybe a, a slightly more forceful response in terms of we don't necessarily just want to be a teddy bear. So it strikes me with all of these things that it's not as if we're saying, you know, get rid of all the self-sacrifice, get rid of all the negativity and pessimism. It's more looking at things in a way that's a little bit more balanced for us and it's going to create less issues in the long run.
1: Yes, I think that's a very good point. A lot of these things are about balance and mentioned earlier, there's one schema that we've left to discuss for the next time and there's a particular reason for this one because there's a balance to this one too. Unrelenting standards and perfectionism. Now, I'll put up my hand and say that certainly in my adult life, especially my earlier adult life, if there's one schema I really had out of control at times, it was unrelenting standards or perfectionism and look i think in some ways um you might relate to that schema in some (laughs) ways as well and hey maybe there might be an element of uh maybe more than coincidence in that with me being your dad there would have been ways that i would have consciously not wanted to pass on much of that schema to you having been aware of it in myself but even inadvertently some of it can come across in different ways so next time we're going to talk about that schema and how Maybe, I'll say in my experience, how it might have got out of balance a bit at times and how there might have been a struggle at times with managing with that, but we can talk about that a little bit in terms of
0: personal experience. Oh, I don't know what you're talking about, Dad. I've got absolutely no personal experience. <laughs> no. no, of course, it's. Uh, yeah, no, um, it'll be interesting in some ways to, uh, oh, I suppose, reflect on that over the next little while before the next podcast because, yeah, that is, I suppose, something that I'd relate to as well and... It's an interesting one because, you know, as we talk about this balance sort of thing, you know, in some ways I identify with elements of my unrelenting standards and, you know, wouldn't even want to let them go in some situations, but as you say, I think there's certainly a balance to be had with all of these and, and particularly unrelenting standards in my situation, so... Dad, we'll we'll have to look forward to the next one to be able to chat about that. But thanks for chatting with me about all this today. We'll put all of the resources for today's episode and, of course, the last couple of episodes up at psychspiels.com.au. If you are listening online, feel free to give us a subscribe on either Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and you'll get that next potentially very revealing episode straight into your podcast directory there but dad thanks again it's been good chatting about all this stuff and i look forward to the next one
1: thanks ronan i look forward to it with a mild degree of trepidation